Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and our guest for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, is author and therapist Andy Kolber. Andi is a licensed professional counselor, writer, and speaker in Castle Rock, Colorado. Andi is passionate about the integration of faith and psychology and its significance for the church today. As a survivor of trauma and a lifelong learner, Andi brings hard-won knowledge around the work of change, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God in our pain. Andi is also a wife and a mother of two young children, and she recently published her first book, Try Softer, a fresh approach to move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode, and into a life of connection and joy. We are delighted to have Andi on the podcast for the second time to share about her book, as well as how we can shift from a life of a try-harder mentality and to learn to love ourselves, mind, soul, and body as beloved ones of Christ. Thank you so much, Andi, for being on the podcast again. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing briefly about your educational background, as well as how that has influenced who you are today? Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back. And yeah, it's great to be here. So in terms of my journey for undergraduate, I went to Pacific Lutheran University and I actually got my degree in business. And I really actually wanted to become a lawyer. And at that point, I think I really had this desire to, uh, I wanted to do focus on social justice with a legal, you know, sort of bent. Mm-hmm. And what I came to find, and as I've like developed and like sort of learned more of my own story is that I think a lot of that was about at times in my childhood and adolescence and whatever I had, I think it felt sort of powerless. And there were times I think that the idea of becoming a lawyer and being able to sort of do something, change something, sort of have some power. I think that was really appealing to me. And over time though, what I realized is that that would not be a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I just found that, you know, my personality, I'm, I'm an Enneagram four, I'm a deep feeler, I'm very passionate. And I certainly have elements of myself that I think would have been fine in the legal world, but I came to really believe that people change often in connection with other people. And so I went on to get my master's in counseling from Denver Seminary back in 2008. So, and now I'm a licensed counselor here in Castle Rock, Colorado. Great. Yeah, that's an interesting story of kind of going from undergrad and business, considering law, and then (laughs) shifting completely into counseling. So also, could you share a little bit about your spiritual background and faith journey and how that has shaped who you are now? Yeah. It's such a big question. I mean, it's a great question, but it's a big question. I don't remember a time when I wasn't aware of God, like just that, in, at least in some element of my life, like at the peripheral of my life. Um, I grew up, I, I could I could do a whole podcast about my, my upbringing with faith, but I was raised in the Catholic church, but my parents also had some sort of connections to the charismatic movement within the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And then that opened us up to sort of the Pentecostal movement 
like in a wider way. And then also like non-denominational as I got into my adolescence, but sort of kept connected to the Catholic faith for a long time. So I guess all that to say, one of the things that makes that very unique is that I also grew up, I, you know, I consider myself a survivor of complex trauma. And so I think sometimes in faith communities, we sort of create this picture that once we know Jesus, everything's going to be fine, like perfect. Mm -hmm. It's over. And, you know, I think my life is just such a stark difference to that. Like, I'm so grateful to have experienced Jesus at a really young age. And even still, I experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of relational and chronic little t trauma in my family. And my faith has been a tremendous resource to me and really important. But at the same time, I've had to really wrestle with a lot of really big questions. And some of them I don't even completely have the answers to in the sense of, okay, well, if Jesus, you know, was present and with me in those times, you know, really having to wrestle with where is God when we're in pain and and even what's God's Mm -hmm. posture to us in pain. And so, so much of my work now honestly, probably one of the things that's truest for me is believing that God is our most secure attachment, the best parent we could possibly have, that God does not celebrate our pain, that God is with us in our pain, even while sometimes I don't understand how we still experience it or allow why God maybe always allows it. So for me, I I guess, you know, this is a journey I'm still on. I am a follower of Jesus but it's taken a lot of different twists and turns in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that. I had no idea. I don't think that you grew up Catholic. So I'm currently Catholic. I say currently Mm, because I became Catholic six years ago. Uh, My husband is a youth minister in the Catholic church. And so that's how I came to that place, but um, Mm. came to faith in the Pentecostal church before that. So when I was like long before that, I should say, Mm. but anyway, so it's interesting to hear you share about your upbringing and how that connects to your experience, how God is with us in our pain. I'll share briefly just one of the first experiences I had being worshiping in the Catholic church was just the sense of having the crucifix front and center that was never present, you know, in when I was in the Methodist church or the Pentecostal Mm -hmm. church, there just weren't those sort of symbols. And for Mm -hmm. me, seeing Christ hanging on the cross every week, in particular, Mm -hmm. my first Lent as a Catholic, or not not as a Catholic yet, but worshiping in the Catholic Church, I really had this strong sense of Jesus speaking to me through that symbol of mm. not so much what should I give up for Lent, but here's how how Jesus is with me in my own pain and suffering, so that He mm. could identify with me in the things that I have suffered. Anyway, long story short, but yeah. yeah so thanks for sharing about your experiences and how you've how you've experienced Jesus being present to you. You mentioned little t trauma. Can you share what you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much too for sharing that. And so, yeah, so little t trauma, I often talk about this delineation and I wish I knew who first said little t trauma. I saw Francine Shapiro many years ago discussed this concept of little t trauma, but I think it came about even before her work. She is the originator or creator, whatever of EMDR. But Mm -hmm. so little t trauma and big t trauma, first I'll just say that I define trauma broadly as anything that overwhelms our nervous system's ability to cope. But within that, there's a whole spectrum. 
So big T trauma is PTSD, and this is not the full diagnostic, but essentially it's anything that sort of threatens threatens our life or we believe our life is threatened. It's observing someone who's also could be experiencing that same thing. It's things like sexual violence or natural disasters. And so if someone, I just always say, if someone believes that they may fit the criteria for that and experiencing symptoms, I would really encourage you to, to find a therapist who specializes in trauma. But little t trauma is essentially almost anything that doesn't fit in big T trauma, but still in some way has overwhelmed our nervous system's ability to cope. And so sometimes people, this is where it's really common, I think, for people to minimize experiences because often they are pitting it against maybe big T trauma. Mm. And I always want to be mindful of like big T trauma is a big T for a reason. You know, it's catastrophic. And there's a sense in which it literally, like we can get to the point where we're not able to function if someone has experienced big T trauma. But the thing that can be very interesting and significant about little t trauma is that when we have accumulated a lot of little t trauma, it can act on our body in the same way as Mm -hmm. essentially as big t trauma. And so this is really significant and and has been frankly life-changing for me personally as someone who experienced chronic little t trauma in my childhood, lots of emotional trauma, lots of you know, emotional abuse and psychological abuse. And so for a long time, even as a new therapist, I really didn't have great language to even completely describe my own experience as to why it was so significant, but also I think not feeling like it was important enough, like valid enough to meet the criteria of trauma. And so, yeah, so this concept of little t trauma, I think, really is important because essentially it's not just, you know, it's not just a theory. It's not just theoretical, but it's like our nervous system, if something, if it can't fully process something, it means it's still stuck in our nervous system, which means that anything that essentially reminds our body of that original thing that it felt like was a threat, our body re-experiences it in the present as though it's like happening in the present. Mm -hmm. And so this is true with both big T trauma and little T trauma. And so it can absolutely really affect how we function in the world. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. That's helpful. So related to that, you recently wrote your first book, Try Softer, a fresh approach to move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode and into a life of connection and joy. Can you share a little bit about what led you to write this book and then what your hopes are for its message now that it's out in the world? Yeah. So, so Try Softer is really it really began as a love letter to my younger self, right? Like if you think about me as a young therapist, even maybe before becoming a therapist, just this sense of just sort of deep pain, uh, lots of really severe anxiety, rigidity, depression. But on the outside, I actually looked pretty darn good. (laughs) Like I was, I played college basketball. I got great grades part of the way that I learned to adapt and cope to the trauma experience in my family is by developing an armor um, that I sort of call white knuckling it, which is just essentially when we, 
because we are perceiving some things as maybe being a threat, we learn to ignore what's going on in our body and essentially just like push through, like no matter the consequences. And really this is rooted, you know, in that trauma response that as a way to say, while this feels dangerous, this feels like the only way to navigate this. So I learned to white knuckle my way through life. And when I was in my early 20s, and then later, especially when I had my daughter, my first child, I just got to this place where white knuckling it, like it had just taken everything out of me. You know, it's just like, it just, the strategies that had once allowed me to survive were keeping me really stuck. And I had a hard time just feeling just like safe in the sense of like, I, I sort of describe it from a visceral sensation of, you know, if you're in a room with someone and you have this experience of feeling really settled in your body. Like you're just like, you're at home with them and maybe even in yourself, hopefully. And I had a really hard time finding that place in myself. It was like, I was never at home in myself. I never, I always felt like I had to walk on eggshells that I could never fully be present or exhale because what might be coming my way. And so Trey Softer, in a sense, is, is my own journey and ultimately then also the invitation to others to, to learn how to pay compassionate attention to our experience as a way to say that once we've kind of made it through the trauma, our body sometimes thinks that we're still in it. And so it's almost like learning how to be gentle with ourselves once hard things have passed so that we can actually heal and give our bodies what they need to actually process that pain and not have to be so stuck. When you say try softer, what would you say it means, especially in the context of higher education, which Mm -hmm. in many ways becomes a space where we are constantly being evaluated and need to try our best, so to speak, and Mm -hmm. to perform well and always being kind of graded and performing for a grade, whether that's for grad students or med students or faculty or other women in academia? Yeah, no, I think this is a really important question. Because I I think this is a for sure, especially in our culture, I think when people hear things like soft or gentle, we equate it with weakness. Mm. And one of the things I love, and for me, there's a lot of intersection with faith with this idea because Jesus was always telling us paradoxes, like the way up is down and, you know, like the way to be first is to be last. And so there's like all Mm -hmm. these paradoxes. And I really believe that this is what Trey Softer is like and, and really what gentleness is like, that there is a strength in what seems like weakness. And in a sense that resilience is rooted in our ability to actually be flexible, to move with situations. And so when we're approaching a life like in academia from this really rigid posture of like, oh my gosh, I have to please this person. I have to meet this expectation. I have to do this. First of all, it's rooted in an outer experience of what makes us maybe valuable, which in and of itself for me goes against my worldview because I believe that people, we are inherently valuable based on the fact that we're made in the image of God. And that you know, I, I just, I really believe that Jesus, you know, that Paul meant what he said when there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so I think what this trisofter idea is then is that we begin with this compassionate attention in any situation, even in academia, like to be able to say, you know, my goal is to get, I don't know, blank grade this 
whatever. Like, I, like I think that that would be that would be helpful. Well, I think part of what compassionate attention might say is, first of all, is that even realistic? <laughs> right. Like, like let's say you know you've been a solid B student your whole life, and there's nothing wrong with being a B student. And I think the first question is, is like, is that something like, what would it cost you to be an A student? Is it going to cost you your sanity? Mm -hmm. Is it going to cost you the connection with your family? Is it going to cost you your wellness, like your mental wellness? Because if it is going to, then compassionate attention would say, your value isn't in what you do. So therefore... Is there a different path to feeling like you're doing what's important to you, but in a way that's not destructive to you? And this is where I think resilience comes in because there's a sense in which often when we stay connected to ourselves, we end up doing really important, good, hard things. And so I think for those people who might be listening saying, well, well, what? I can't try softer. I have to do this. I think it's an opportunity to question how we're evaluating ourselves. Like, what does success even mean in that situation? For instance, is it really about grades or is it what you're learning? Is it about the person you're becoming? Is it what resources you're gaining so that when you move out into the world, you're not burnt out and bitter, but you're ready to show people that they too are loved, that they too are valuable or whatever that might look like. So sort of related to that idea of not trying harder, mm-hmm. trying softer, right? As we enter into the new year, many of us are inclined to make resolutions, which feels in some ways antithetical to the try softer mm-hmm. idea. What thoughts would you offer on walking that balance between not falling into a try harder mentality or do better, you know, change your life in 30 days or <laughs> however, mm-hmm. but also recognizing that growth and change is important? Yeah. This is such an important idea and concept. And I think it especially shows itself this time of year, you know, at at New Year's when I think for many of us, this idea of change is, is so seductive because I think we believe it will end our pain. I think there's something about that. And and I mean, I'm not exempt from it. I have felt that very much in my life at times that it's like, well, if I just do this one thing, right? Like it's that constant, just like one more thing, like just around the bend is peace, you know, just Mm. around the bend is hope. And so I just, I get where that comes from. And I I think this is a place, first of all, just to practice compassion. If people are even in that place to say that I get why that might be true, but try softer is really rooted in the concept that God is a compassionate, kind parent to us. And that is true, not because we've necessarily earned it, or because we've hustled for it, but just because it's inherent, like that's who God is to us. And I believe it's because of the fact that he made us valuable. And so therefore it really comes to this idea that there's something in us that is, is unmovable in terms of like, what's true. I sometimes call it like our truest self. It's this part of us that is like, no matter what, even when we make terrible decisions, even when we mess up, even when we do all these things, there's a part of us that remains our truest self. And I believe that as we move into new years and all the things that come along with it, if we can hold on to the reality that we don't have to earn 
Like there's nothing we can do to become our truest self. It's like, it's already there. Like the Mm -hmm. belovedness is already there. And it's more about what in our life allows us to further connect with that reality. So we're not living out of our wounds, but rather living out of the truth of who we are. And I believe it's from that place. And this is again, the paradox that there's a sense in which there's a part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex that when it's online, and it's such an important part of our brain, but it's not the only important part. But it's this element of us that's able to integrate our whole body and what's going on with us. So when we're triggered or when we're in fight or flight or when we're dissociated, that part of our brain isn't online. And I think this is significant because a lot of times I think our goals, what we perceive to be our goals, actually trigger really deep wounds in us. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it could be so many things. When I'm more organized, when I lose weight, when I'm more well-read, when I get a bigger house, when I have a house, when I have children, you know what I mean? Like there's all these yeah. things that we hold up as, well, when this happens, then, then the wound will heal. And paradoxically, the healing, the practice of healing is actually in being tender towards the wounds themselves. Not necessarily giving the wounds what they think they want, but giving them gentleness and kindness and in a sense, reparenting them in the way God parents us so that they don't have to hold that story anymore. And often when those parts of us are freed up to not have to like live under those beliefs, then, then our true self says, you know what? Maybe I do want to write that book. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what? A walk actually sounds really good you know what? That thing that I ate kind of made me feel pretty bad. So I think I'm going to eat this instead, you know? So my belief and in my practice of like what I do with my clients and in my own life is that we first work on really staying connected and regulated and honoring the story and all those things. And often from that, what comes secondarily is that you can sometimes see some changes come out of that. Yeah, sure. And as you were talking about the change comes out of finding your true self, so to speak. I mean, I'm not paraphrasing exactly how you said it, but it reminded me of First John chapter 3, which I've been kind of thinking through and meditating on this past semester, where it starts out, beloved, now we are God's children. And then it says, who we will become has not yet been fully revealed or something like that. I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing it a bit, but starts off letting us know who we are, beloved. You are God's children now, but what you will be has not yet been made known. Um, This idea that who we are, our true self, right, is becoming, and yet at the same time, we already are beloved. Yes. I think that's such a powerful, yeah, what a great, what a great scripture to point to. And I think it really is also pointing to this idea of this already, but not yet, yeah, um, yeah, concept that you know Jesus came, Jesus has been with us, Jesus has said it is finished, and but also like it isn't fully complete, like the kingdom isn't fully on earth yet, and so we live in the tension, you know, we live in the tension that Jesus came and yet we're not finished, and that's what that reminds me of, you know, that like we're beloved and we're imperfect, and yeah, like we make mistakes and we're flawed and we're still in process. And that's okay. Related to the New Year's resolution idea as well, you have a chapter in here, um, Try Softer. I 
feel like the title is something like try softer with your body. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's what it's called. Try softer with your body. And that chapter, I think it's towards the end, but it was absolutely my favorite. You share a little story about being with your toddler at the pool, kind of realizing that you didn't love your body. You share about how you came to recognize that your body also is beloved. And Mm. am I allowed to read a little bit of it? Yeah, feel free. Okay, great. So you wrote, I have believed I am beloved for so long. On this day at the pool, I realize that not every part of my body knows this and believes it still. So I will try to live out my belovedness even here. And I am grateful for this body that has carried so much for what it has accomplished and for how it has held me, loved my children and given me access to wisdom. I've mostly found peace with my body. I do not push it in the same ways I used to. Mostly I try to listen to it now, to pour kindness all over those parts of me that have been plagued by my own criticism and self-doubt. I am trying to live out what I already know. My body is me. Can you share a little bit about just that journey of learning to love our bodies? Because I think as women, especially, there's so much there. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm about to be 40 and I feel like I'm just now starting to like love my body, but I can think about so many times in my life that I've been inclined to think negative thoughts, right? All the time. Mm-hmm. So what thoughts would you offer mm-hmm. in learning to love our bodies? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that is so complicated is that there just isn't a prescriptive, right? And that's one of the things I talk about in Try Softer is that this is so much about a way to be with ourselves versus, you know, I think often our culture loves quick lists of here's how to do something quickly, right? Right. And and I think that like the body is something that we have learned in Western culture to live disembodied lives. And so even while we still focus oftentimes, especially for women, women are often objectified and we, and we honestly have learned, I believe, to often objectify ourselves. Um, that's why also in that same chapter, I talk about how like, I make a promise to my body, like I won't objectify you you know, and I'll try not Mm -hmm. to objectify others either because without even realizing it, I think often we fall into the systemic way of being in the world in which we look at each other as we are objects and that we are not a full self. And so that's why I say that like my body is me, just like I am the beloved, my body is the beloved. They're one in the same, they're not separate, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I think while I don't want to offer anything prescriptive, what I would say is that often what I have found is that the very beginning of this journey is just learning to befriend, to befriend our body. And what I mean by that is that we begin to get curious with it. Because really so much of this emotional work, it takes place in the body. Mm-hmm. It's not like the mind has all our emotional self and the body something separate. No, like the body is the steward of what we come to name as feelings. And that's the birthplace of our emotions. And it is the place where trauma is stored. And it's what allows us also to move through trauma is because of our bodies. And so what can often happen for many people is that there's like this confluence of our traumas and our emotional, maybe sometimes it's emotional trauma. I know for me, what I experienced is that I had a lot of emotional trauma and I lived in a system in our culture that 
made me believe that probably one of the ways that I could experience love was by fitting a very particular mold and or by achieving. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, I took that and I ran. And so it was like the mode that I tried to make my body be what I thought it was supposed to be was through shame. And at times for me, that meant disordered eating. It meant like punishing myself through working out way too much because I was angry at my body because I didn't feel like it was, you know, it didn't look the way I thought it was supposed to look. And so this journey of befriending our bodies is getting curious. And I think sometimes we, I know for myself and maybe, and often even for clients, if we push people into loving their bodies before they're ready, before we've given them a framework for how to move forward, that can actually be really triggering because they're like, I want to love my body, but I don't, I don't. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's too big of a bridge. And so sometimes I think what can happen is beginning to respect our bodies by even just getting curious with like the ways that our body has supported us. My body helps me breathe. My body helps me stand up. My body helps me move. Like my body has, from a trauma lens, my body has helped me to move through trauma and even survive it. And Mm -hmm. even times when I thought that my body was betraying me, what I've come to find is that my body was doing everything possible just to help me survive. And so I think a lot of times the place that we can begin is just by really looking at it from a fuller perspective, not just like the perception of what does our body look like, but what can our body do? And what what does it like to be in our body? And by do, I don't just mean like, look how far I can run, but look how I can taste this food. (laughs) That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Look how I can smell this scent that's this eucalyptus or whatever. That's phenomenal. This is because of my body. You know, and I think the intersection too is that for me, that Jesus, the incarnational life of who Jesus is and was, is that he lived in a body and he experienced life in a body and that he is inviting us to also experience what it fully looks like to live in our bodies too. Yeah. And you use the word befriend about our bodies and thinking about how we would treat a friend versus the way we often treat our bodies, right? Like we would never say some of the things that we think about our own bodies to a friend. So actually having that compassion, as you mentioned, towards ourselves, towards our body, not disconnecting it. Throughout the book, you write about your own experience as a trauma survivor. How would you say that personal experience informs your work with others who are also working toward their own healing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's so important, like in a therapeutic lens, is to make sure that I don't project my pain or my story onto other people. And what I mean by that is that, you know, that's just a really, that's a thing that can happen in therapy where we get our pain confused with other people's pain. And that's why it's so important for therapists, especially, but anyone who's working with people, so pretty much everyone to Mm -hmm. do therapy, to be aware of like, this is mine, like this in, in the sense of like, this is, this is from my story. This wound is connected to my, to me versus this is from my client or this is what my client is experiencing. So I think what is helpful is that the deeper I go into my own work is that, A, I definitely have a ton of empathy for how hard the work is. It is some of the bravest work I think anyone could ever do is to really lean in 
to the parts of their story that are painful. And, you know, there's a sense of doing my own work allows me to be more embodied, meaning I am more present in my experience, in my body. And as a therapist and the type of therapist I am, my body is an essential tool in the therapy room because our our bodies have the ability to really mirror and connect and pick up on the cues of other people. And that's important for the folks that I'm sitting with. And even as I'm writing and picturing how people might connect with what I'm writing, to have a clear sense of like almost being able to track with what that Mm -hmm. person is experiencing. But this is also why it's essential that I have done my own work because if something comes up, like let's say someone's talking about their childhood trauma, it's vital for me to be aware of how to, let's say something maybe slightly triggering that I hear from somebody's story. I have to, as a therapist, be able to make sure that I can contain whatever might have come up for me during the session so that I can be fully present with that person. Like that's really important, especially for therapists to do that work. Otherwise it's, I mean, it's essentially unethical, right? Like we have to make sure that we're as therapists getting the support we need so that if something is hard, like we have the tools. So I guess I, I say that like, it's like this dance that I have a deep empathy for people and I have to make sure that I have the tools to really be grounded in my own story so I can be really present. And that's a really great way that I believe I'm able to, I think it's a really helpful part of the work that I do with my clients that I'm not just hearing about their story. I'm with them in the story. I'm feeling with them. And, you know, especially with certain types of trauma, attachment trauma, emotional trauma, part of the issue is that we have maybe not had someone to be there with us in the way we needed to support us as we moved through the pain. So that's part of healing is really experiencing in a visceral way, the withness of another person. Yeah. And I appreciate the idea of being able to bracket your stuff, right. And not project it onto the clients. And I wonder too, in other areas, you know, not the counseling setting, but in other areas in academia, maybe being like campus ministry or professors to students that also things can come up for people, right. And mm-hmm. they need to bracket it aside, but also letting those places in your life that things that have happened shape who you are and allow to build empathy. Right. Mm-hmm. So kind of related to that, there's been some conversation recently about trigger warnings or content warnings, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as a trauma-informed counselor, particularly for university faculty, about including trigger warnings and content that students might encounter. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an important idea that I think, I, I don't feel like I have super clear answers in the sense that it's a little bit, like we talked about, it's a little bit outside of my expertise in the sense that I am not, I'm not a professor, you know, and like, that's a little Mm -hmm. bit outside of my sphere. But what I can say is that I know that some of the most recent research is telling us that trigger warnings aren't necessarily helping even folks who have identified with having PTSD. They're not necessarily diminishing the overwhelm that person is experiencing after seeing the trigger warning. However, this is what I would say is that I think that one thing our culture sometimes does is that we go real hot and cold 
we go like, mm-hmm. oh, trigger warnings don't seem like they're helpful. Never mind. <laughs> just like don't right. pay any attention to trauma and it doesn't matter. And I would just caution folks to say that's not helpful either. <laughs> because <laughs> sure. anywhere we go, we take our story with us. We take our wounds with us. And the more uninformed we are, um, the more our unconscious acts on our conscious without us even knowing it. And so what I would say is that based off of my experience with trauma and as a trauma-informed therapist is that I think what we really need is for systems themselves to become trauma-informed. So one warning in the midst of a system that in no way honors the humanity and of people and the nervous systems that they carry honestly probably isn't going to help. But like in a systemic way, I would love to see universities begin to bring in trauma experts to help them understand this is how trauma works. And not that the professors themselves need to become experts, but there are ways for us to get a high level view of trauma. Because what can happen is like, for example, let's say someone's in a classroom and the teacher brings up something that maybe wouldn't normally need a a trigger warning, right? No one even thinks it's a trigger warning, but for whatever reason, it's connected to a person's story in a way that actually is triggering. If a, it like, let's say after class, the student comes up to the professor and they're, they're like, I, you know, like maybe they're really angry and not that they're doing anything that is unsafe, but if the professor can understand that their student is outside of their window of tolerance, this would go a long way to just helping that professor understand that, hey, let's take a beat. Can we schedule some time to talk about this when you're feeling a little bit more regulated and like we can problem solve together? That's an example of how I think things can spiral really quickly when people are super dysregulated. And if we don't have any knowledge of what's happening from a nervous system view, I think it can get bad kind of quickly. So you mentioned window of tolerance, which you write about in the book quite a bit. Should we just say to people, go read the book? (laughs) Or would you care to share a bit what you mean by that? Yeah, no, I'd love to define it. I was trying to remember if I defined it earlier or not. So the window of tolerance, just like what I am meaning in that example is that when something, um, when our body perceives something to, well, no, let me back up even more. The window of tolerance is the range in which we can experience emotions or sensations or even situations in a way that feels tolerable. And so we kind of stay ourselves. You know, this is kind of what it means when it's like we can feel our feelings, but like we do it in a way that feels just essentially tolerable. But for lots of different reasons, if our body perceives that a situation is threatening, which if someone has a history of big T trauma or little T trauma, they're going to be, their body is going to be more hyper aware and they might even misperceive some situations. Are We may more easily go outside of our window of tolerance into either fight or flight or into dissociation. And so essentially that's trauma. That, those are trauma responses. Those are, and it's not just trauma responses. That's a natural way that our body tries to move us out of danger. But if we never got the support to move through that, if we get triggered and go into that, that is the trauma response. 
-hmm. And so in that example, that's what I mean is that a student could easily go into a trauma response, not necessarily because the classroom itself is unsafe, but because something is cueing their body to feel as though something is threatening. So the more that we can empower students to understand their own body and empower professors to understand what's going on with themselves and students, mm-hmm. we have more choices. It's not to say that people should just get a pass from like not doing a class or something, but let's do it in a way that is safe and compassionate and giving people options and choices so that they're coming from their full self rather than having to live out of fight or flight or dissociation. Yeah, thank you. That's the helpful explanation. It is in the book quite a bit as well, like a more full explanation. So if people do want to learn more about it, they can. And one of the things I appreciate about your book too, is that it really integrates the science about the brain, the neuroscience, and it integrates sort of an academic piece to anxiety and stress and trauma, as well as your own story, as well as the faith piece. So there's a great balance of those three things coming together. So, you know, I I found the book to be like really helpful academically as well, even as I was preparing to study for the national counseling exam, I was like, like, I can read this or Howard Rosenthal. But anyway, yeah. So kind of related then to the window of tolerance, you've I can't remember if it's in the book or if it's something else you posted, maybe a video on social media or something about parenting. And -hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts about parenting, particularly things parents or any adult with a kid in their lives can do to be a neutralizing force amidst sort of all the stress and anxiety in our Mm -hmm. culture today. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I definitely would encourage folks to, to look at the book partly just because I go into this a little bit more in depth, but I think the beauty of TriSofter is that when we do our own work, we're more fully connected to our body, which allows us to actually have a deeper empathy and more almost like wisdom in the sense that like, because we're taking cues from what our body's picking up as to the people we're around. And so that includes our kids, you know, obviously. And I think one of the things that oftentimes, you know, for a long time, I think their parenting, the idea behind it was sort of like, here are the the right ways to do things with your kids, the end. And I think what we've come to learn is that it's more about parents themselves having the tools to be emotionally regulated so that they can help their kids be emotionally regulated. And once we get emotionally regulated, that's the place where we can learn That's where we can gain new information. And so, you know, in a culture where it's like, there's just, there is, there's, we are bombarded. There's so much going on. There's so much pain. It's really easy to get dysregulated, frankly. It's actually kind of countercultural to prioritize being an integrated person. And so I would just say one of the big things is really even asking questions like, in this situation, do I need to regulate myself first or do I need to help my kiddo get regulated? If it's you first, then you go ahead and do that. That's totally fine and that's good. You know, take a moment, come back to your kiddo, help them get regulated. And then like depending on the situation, you know, sometimes it's time for giving some gentle correction or giving some like, hey, that was hurtful or how do we make amends? But that can only come once we've connected with compassion with our kiddos, because otherwise 
they're living from their lower brain and they literally can't learn. They're not going to learn new information. So, you know, I really go into some of that brain science in the book about why this matters and some potential ideas for what that looks like. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, just to wrap up for the sake of time, we like to conclude the podcast, as you probably remember, with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately and about why it resonates with you at this time? Mm, Yeah, no, I love that. I'm trying to remember the exact quote. Let me get it really quick. Um, But I have been digging John O'Donohue so much. He's like one of my favorites. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. Not at all. Yeah. He wrote a whole book uh, of like essentially blessings. Okay. Um, I think it's called To Bless the Space Between Us, if I'm remembering correctly. But I just got it for Christmas and I love it so Mm. much because it's just a very benediction style book. Like he's all about this idea that he's actually passed away now, but that we have lost the art of blessing in our culture And that, what would it look like to sort of really have this sort of ritual of of speaking these words of life? And so I just resonate with his work a ton. But this is a quote that I was just reading recently. And he says, may I live this day compassionate of heart, clear in word, gracious in awareness, courageous in thought, generous in love. John O'Donohue. Thank you. And normally we would end with that last question. However, with the same theme as John O'Donohue's work, I've noticed that you always end your email newsletters or from time to time on social media, as well as ending your new book with a benediction. Mm. And I wondered if you would be willing to conclude this interview with a benediction, especially one for women in academia. Mm. Yeah, it would be my honor. May you come to experience deep in your bones the truth of your belovedness. May you know that you are loved in the midst of the heart, even while you are maybe still struggling, even while you are in process. May you know that the one who created you delights just to be near you. May you have every resource needed to move towards wholeness. May you know you are loved. Great. Thank you so, so much for your time, Andi. We're looking forward to seeing what your book does out in the world. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.